Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we know that Isaiah told us that you are high and lifted up. That you occupy eternity. That you are holy and that you dwell in the high and the holy place. With him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. Lord, we know that humility and repentance, contrition, brings us into the perfect position where you're willing to meet with us. And so, Heavenly Father, as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, I pray that we wouldn't be content to just simply know more about the text, but that, Lord, you would reveal to us our condition our spiritual condition. Lord, we invite you to search us, to know us, to try us, and to see, like the psalmist said, if there be any wicked way in us, so that you might lead us in the way everlasting. Search us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 58, I'm going to read the first five verses. It says, Cry out aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, In the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? There's a Chinese proverb that says, You can't stand with one foot in two boats. In Texas, they, they say, You can't ride two horses with one derriere. Only they don't really use the term derriere. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you're not going to serve two masters. You will love the one and despise the other. Or you're going to cling to the one and reject the other. It was Oswald Chambers who said, The world is glad of an excuse not to listen to the gospel message. And the inconsistencies of Christians is the excuse. How often have you heard a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend of yours talk about the hypocrisy of Christianity and you remind them that the church will welcome one more hypocrite if they care to join the reality is few of us are are open or willing to admit to hypocrisy we know what a hypocrisy what a hypocrite is a hypocrite's a pretender a make-believer a person who puts on a show who acts one way but it deep inside are entirely different and there's something gnawing at each and every one of us as we wonder just how deep and how profound our own hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy takes many forms. People who love the Lord but for fear pretend to be indifferent to God are just as much a hypocrite. If you go to work and you pretend that you're really not a Christian, If you go to work and pretend like Jesus doesn't mean anything to you and that the Bible isn't true and that the promises of God aren't true, you're as much of a hypocrite as a person who acts and and pretends to be a Christian but inwardly lives the life of an unbeliever. 
A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be seeking God, but in, in fact their hearts and their actions, they, they really seek recognition and esteem and position and power and fame and wealth. The hypocrite acts humble and helpful, but internally and invisibly is filled with pride and envy and selfishness and covetousness and cowardice. They show concern for the things of God, but in their hearts, they're firmly committed to the things of this world. The hypocrite professes to know and believe God's word, but then they give themselves permission to add from the word of God or take away from the word of God at their own discretion. They embrace those parts of the Bible that they're willing to agree with and reject those parts that prohibit them or keep them from living the kind of sinful life that they think that they want to live. People are willing to fast in order to prove devotion to God by by making themselves hungry and miserable while disregarding their obligation to make other people happy and filled with joy. God knows that it's easy to be religious, but it's very difficult to be loving and kind. It's very difficult to actually examine your heart in light of what God's word says and then forsake your sin and cling to him. We sometimes think of religion as a, as a personal lifestyle option that's disconnected from what God says and from what the Bible says. Oh, just whatever you want, whatever you want, just do whatever you want. But the Lord makes careful and specific demands, obligations. And it begins, if you will, in this particular passage with the confessions of the closet Pharisee. Now remember, in the book of Isaiah, it's the 7th century B.C., he's predicting the removal of the Jews from Judah and Jerusalem. They're going to be taken captive. They're going to be placed in Babylon. And it is there that they're going to have to somehow maintain their distinctive Jewishness And so in the first verse, look what it says. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. By the way, the house of Jacob is all of Israel. But what's interesting is it says, tell my people. And when you look in the first verse, it isn't limited to the people of Israel. But it extends to all believers in every generation. And he says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. The message is significant, and it's so significant that Isaiah said, is told to cry aloud, spare no expense, if you will. Lift up your voice. Don't. There's certain things that you can't hold back. You have to tell the truth. And so what Isaiah is saying is, speak loudly, speak often. Speak persistently. Make sure everyone hears the message. And what is the message? Tell my people their transgression. He begins in the place where we really don't want to begin typically. It's the the place of disobedience and sin. Remind the people of their sin. And the problem with reminding people of of sin is if you come to the conclusion, I really don't have any sin, I have no problems, I'm pretty much fine, then it makes a, a, a huge difficulty. Because the people are guilty of dangerous sins. And here, when he says, tell my people their transgression, the word transgression there in the Hebrew language literally means rebellion. It isn't the thought or a specific act. It isn't a specific sin that's been committed, but an overall attitude of rebellion. God's people were deliberately rebelling against him. They were turning from his holy commandments. They professed to know the Lord. They were, they were following him, but they were living the life of a make-believer. And in verse 2 it says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. 
they take delight in approaching God. Here is the idea. Every day they're going to the temple. Every day they're reading their Torah. Every day they're saying that they delight to know God's ways. As a nation that did righteousness, it says, and did not forsake the ordinances of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. It's the Lord's way of saying, look, for whatever reason, you're not getting it. You're acting religious, you're, you're doing religious things, but there's something wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong. And this, that's part of the problem of the make-believer, the hypocrite. They're unaware of their own hypocrisy. They're going through the religious motions, but they're unaware of their own hypocrisy. They've succeeded in the most dangerous of all conditions of, of self-deception. The religious Jews in the 7th century were observing Judaism, but they were mixing with the surrounding idols and idolatry. They, they gave themselves permission to act like unbelievers. Despite being guilty of horrible sin, they continued to go through the religious motions, the religious activities. They clung to the foolish and wicked thought that God was accepting them because they were going through the religious motions. Wait a minute, wait a minute, God. I go to temple, I am fasting, I'm performing the sacrifices. Surely that must count for something. I mean, it's bad enough that I have to go to church on Sunday. Oh, oh look, Lord, Wednesday. Do you understand what a sacrifice? I could be at home watching American Idol. But here's, here's the point. They're convinced that their religious activities mean that God will accept them. God certainly won't reject them. Look, they're going through the religious motions. Now, listen carefully. They're convinced that they're eternally secure. But not in the true biblical meaning of that word. Not in the true assurance that God gives the true believer who has a right relationship with God through Christ, but the false hope that was extended to the make-believer and the hypocrite who sincerely believed the lie that your thoughts, your deeds, your actions don't really matter to God. That if you go to church, if you read your Bible, if you act like a religious person, it doesn't really matter what you think in the quietness of your own private thoughts. It doesn't really matter what you do in the privacy of your own home. It doesn't matter what you do in your community. It doesn't matter what you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Because you're religious at least one day a week or two days a week. In the passage, the Lord is going to point out four claims that the hypocrites make. Number one, we're seeking God daily. We have daily devotions. We have a worship time, either at home or at their worship center. And number two, we're eager to learn God's ways and study God's word so we'll know how to live righteous lives and please God. Number three, we pray for guidance. We want to make we want to do what's right. We want to make just decisions in our behavior. Number four, we worship the Lord. We seek the Lord on a regular basis throughout the day. We draw near to the Lord in fellowship and communion. Now, if a church said that, hey, this is what we do, you would want to go to that church, and I would want to go to that church. But the Lord says, I, I want something more than just religious observance. In verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors, it says in verse 3. Do you understand what's happening? They're complaining to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls? Here is the idea. They've, they've, they've messed up their hair and they've gone without food and and. And they've afflicted themselves as if this act, this religious act of fasting is going to ingratiate them to God. In fact, it says in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. The idea being you're fasting, but guess what? You're living your life throughout the day, not like you're seeking me. And when it says and you're exploiting your labors, it's you're treating the people who work for you like slaves. You're engaging in this religious activity, but then you're treating 
people like they don't matter. Why has God neglected me? Why hasn't God heard me? Why hasn't God heard my prayers? Hypocrites. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. The Lord says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In Matthew 23:28, it says, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but instead you're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. So in, in verse 4, in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 4, it says, Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on, on high. The Lord's answer, look, you're doing these religious things, but you're still living selfishly. You're doing these religious things, but you still exploit people. You're doing these religious things, but you're always divisive. You're always arguing. You're always fighting. So if you're engaged in religious activity, but the fruit of your religious activity is a weak, wicked, hypocritical action, then something's terribly wrong. In other words, what the Lord is pointing out, He refuses to embrace the notion that belief is all that matters. That your behavior doesn't matter. That what you do doesn't really matter. The real issue. How can you expect God to bless despite wicked behavior? And so in verse 5 it says, Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? What he's, what he's basically doing is he's criticizing all of those people who afflict themselves, who go through the motions as if going through the religious motions makes you acceptable to God. I grew up in a religious tradition that if you fast on Fridays and if you go through the motions and if you have burnt ash put on your head in the form of a cross on Ash Wednesday, if you go through the motions, if you go through the sacramental motions, then you're okay. But there was something fundamentally wrong with me because my heart didn't change and my attitude didn't change and my wicked and evil thoughts didn't change and my my speech didn't change. And so they've fallen into the trap that the hypocrites fall into. The Pharisees lair. They believe wrongly that the Lord accepts religious behavior. That that's somehow something that God in heaven looks at and goes thank God you're at church thank God you've opened your Bible thank God you've offered up a prayer but when you open up your Bible and you offer up a prayer and you go to church but you're at the Rockies game and you're thinking to yourself oh God I wish I'd gone to the Rockies game now, don't get me wrong. It's not, there's nothing wrong with going to the Rockies game, even on Wednesdays. I think that the, actually the Lord would rather you be at the Rockies game, but that's where you really want to be. But when you set aside time to worship and pray, He actually wants you here with your mind and your heart and your thoughts and your, and your focus and your attention on Him. And see, this is what, what happens. God knows the difference between belief and behavior. And the hypocrites have forsaken the commandments of the, the Lord and they've refused to live righteously. In other words, they are okay with believing the commandments and the instructions, but they don't want to live differently. Think about this. God demands, God insists on a personal relationship with Him and obedience in that relationship. I want to know you, and I want to love you, and I want to have a relationship with you. And then 
it, the, the relationship can't simply be on the basis of me telling you what the rules are and then you obeying the rules. But that's how we are. Have you ever had a situation where you had a relationship with someone and you said, just tell me what you want from me? And they say something really, absolutely stunning like, I want you to talk to me and I want you to be with me and I want you to know me and love me and I want you to spend time with me and, and I just want you to enjoy being with me. I don't know if I could do that. Well, what does it mean to have a friendship and a relationship? You see, that's what hypocrites do. They confuse the issue. They, sub they substitute religious heritage or church membership with personal relationships and obedience to the Lord Jesus. They equate or substitute good works for personal obedience to the commands of Christ. Well, look. The Lord says, I want you to love me and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Look, I've given to the orphans in Somalia. What more do you want from me? Well, again, when you substitute good works for personal obedience to the commandments of Christ, you're playing the part of a hypocrite. Because you believe that good deeds will somehow make you acceptable to God. Therefore, we feel that little sins or little slip-ups or little transgressions don't really matter as long as we have enough good deeds and we've got the slip-ups, we've got the mistakes, we've got the failures, we've got the inconsistencies, but we're, we're unwilling to actually call it what it is. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The Bible and the Lord certainly encourage us to seek Him daily. We want to learn God's Word. We want to pray. We want to draw close to the Lord throughout the day. We believe that these are important disciplines. We, we believe these promote friendship and relationship with the Lord. But engaging in these acts of worship and neglecting to behave in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord is hypocritical. I went to church. I read my Bible today. I had my devotions. then why did you act so wickedly towards your husband or towards your wife? Why were you so short-sighted and short-tempered with your children? Why is it that you were so wicked and mean to that person when you had every opportunity to be nice? This was the charge that the Lord was making to the people who lived in Isaiah's time. People who were comfortable being religious but people who were totally uncomfortable being righteous. By the way, the charge continues in, in the generation of Jesus. And then it continues to our own and, and to the generation of Paul. Remember in Second Timothy chapter three, verse five, it says Paul says that they they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power, and from such people turn away. In other words, they have a form of godliness. But they don't live godly lives. And so here's God's condition for holy behavior. If you look at the end of verse 5, he, I'm going to go back to the beginning. It says, is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush to spread the sackcloth? The picture is you put your cloth and your ashes to draw attention to the fact that you're in mourning. Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Look at verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. In other words, here is their fast. We choose not to eat today. God's chosen fast. I want, I want something more than just refraining from eating today. I want you to let go the bonds of wickedness. I want you to dump the heavy burdens. I want you to let the oppressed go free. 
I want you to break every yoke. This is God's chosen fast. In verse 7 it says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and you and not hide yourself from your own flesh? By the way, in verse 7 when it says your own flesh in the Hebrew language, this is very interesting. It means your own flesh and blood. Here's what he's saying. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Now listen carefully. The person says, I'm going to fast today. Well, great. And the Lord says, by the way, when you think about the food that you're refusing to eat today, take that food, set it aside, and give it to the poor. Imagine a person comes to you and says, I haven't eaten anything for three days. And you say, look, I went to Chick-fil-A today. Food still tastes the same. Is that really what that person is asking? They're communicating a need. In Hebrew, your own flesh means your own flesh and blood. It means your family. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? In other words, that you make the sacrificial Attempt to minister when you see the naked that you cover him. In other words, that you make the choice instead of buying a $50 t-shirt to buy two $20 t-shirts and give one to the poor and then put $10 in the poor box. Here, here's the idea. And not hide yourself from your own flesh and blood. The idea being that when your family needs help, you give help to your family. But Isaiah means more than just your immediate family, your flesh. When he's talking about your flesh and blood, I suspect that Isaiah actually is extending this to all of humanity, seeing that We live in a world where we share a common identity. We are all the offspring of Adam. We are all the offspring of Noah. Each and every human being on the planet Earth shares a common origin. That's what it's saying. When we feel cold, when we experience hunger, when we experience suffering, we share a common existence. It's safe to say that if you've experienced hunger and you've experienced thirst and you've experienced want, it's in part to give you the ability to recognize and identify others who experience hunger, thirst, and want. Isaiah is calling the people of Judah and Jerusalem to detox from hypocrisy because they deeply entrenched in their hypocrisy. We divide the world into the haves and the have-nots. Do you remember when you were a kid? Hark, hark, the dogs do bark. The beggars are coming to town. Some in rags, some in tags, some in velvet gowns. You have the people who have and you have the people who who haven't. Did you know that 24,000 people die from hunger and hunger-related causes every day? Today. 24,000 people, most of them were children. And so the Lord spells out the specific behavior that He demands. It's not good enough that you fast. But I want you to fast, and then I want you to look up, and I want you to look around and see what's going on in the world. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about this in the New Testament? He says, and when you pass... When you fast, don't do as the hypocrites do. Don't ruffle your hair. I haven't eaten for three days. I'm fasting unto the Lord. Well, go get something to eat. You look really sick and tired. But rather, when you fast, wash your face, comb your hair, and smile. Remember, if you're fasting and you're not taking the time to honor, obey, pray, read your Bible, draw close to the Lord, then you're just simply dieting. And so, the hypocrites have to understand exactly what they must do in order to be truly acceptable to the Lord. He gives them five specific behaviors. Number one, the issue of humility. 
and God's chosen fast, we refuse to eat the bread of pride and selfishness. We humble ourselves. We afflict our souls. We acknowledge the Lord. Here's, here's His chosen fast. We deprive ourselves, not so much of food. You see, we tend to think of a fast of giving up TV, giving up food, giving up this, giving up that. But the Lord says, it, it's okay to refuse to eat food in order to pray and seek God. But what I really want you to give up is pride and selfishness and to humble yourself. We acknowledge the Lord and then we acknowledge dependence on Him. We don't simply set aside a day for worship or fasting, but we acknowledge the Lord every day, seven days a week, in public and private humility and worship and adoration and dependence on the Lord. We seek the Lord publicly and privately. We seek Him openly and in secret. We cultivate a secret garden, a private closet, a special place where we meet the Lord. Remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If the spirit is going to be willing, you have to cultivate the spirit. And then he talks not only about the issue of humility, but the issue of sub submission and, and dependence through through prayer. That's what it means in verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? The idea being he's bowing down his head in prayer. We don't simply set aside a day for prayer and fasting. The idea being we pray, but then we pray every day. We, we pray every, every day. In, in the New Testament it says, pray without ceasing. Is it okay to set aside a special day for special prayer? Of course it is. But is it a substitute for doing what's right to the people who are in your life? We pray privately without seeking to draw attention to ourselves. And then there's the issue of obedience. The hypocrite must constantly wage war and fight the battle so that they can obey God every day. We're not simply interested in, in being acceptable to God. Oh, one day a week. Or twice a week. I know this seems difficult, but this is part of what Isaiah is saying. That the Lord wants you to seek Him every day. Obey Him every day. Talk to him every day. We're not interested in simply being acceptable on one day, but every day. The Lord isn't interested in just simply visiting you on Sunday. He loves you every day. In the morning when you wake up, He loves you. When you brush your teeth, He loves you. When you're watching that stupid television show, He still loves you. When you go just a little bit overboard on the hand sponge shake at Chick-fil-A, he still loves you. Obeying God is a continual demand. We don't pick and choose the commandments that we want to obey and then disregard the ones we don't want to obey. God is looking for a pattern in our life to obey him in righteousness and purity. No wonder Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so there's the issue of justice. The believer must be just in their dealings with others. The hypocrite has a constant battle. Uh, to God, the true fast is living honorably and treating others with respect and treating them the way that you want to be treated. So if you pray and then yell and scream at your kids, if you fast, and yell and scream at your husband? If you go to church and fundamentally, hypocritically, 
treat everyone around you wickedly, then you're a hypocrite. And so the Bible says that the chains of unrighteousness and injustice also have to be broken. Every yoke of bondage must be removed. That's what he's saying. Those who control, those who manipulate, those who enslave others, they have to be challenged and defeated. Those who oppress and those who exploit must be set free. And mercy has to be shown to those who suffer and are burdened. Only the merciful will receive mercy. Do a quick inventory. Think of all of the people who enslave and subjugate. And you might think, okay, I think of Pharaoh in Egypt. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I think of the dictators of old, the emperors of Rome, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Saddam Husseins, the world rulers, the petty bureaucrats at DMV, who with all of their authority and might and sovereign power exercise control over your registration. They have the ability to make you wait as long as they wish. We think of the small-minded teachers, the false prophets, the criminals, the lawyers, the employers, your next-door neighbor. We're willing to go almost anywhere but to our own So at the beginning of the chapter, God tells Isaiah, shout at the top of your lungs. Say it loudly and say it as long as it takes for people to understand their wickedness and their hypocrisy. And then he says this, it's unacceptable to God. It's unacceptable. If you neglect the poor and the needy. And by the way, the hypocrite has to battle with selfishness. We minister to the poor and the needy. And that's the only behavior that's acceptable to God. It isn't simply refraining from food in a religious fast, but it's providing food for the poor. Imagine the one day that you refrain from eating and you take the money and you give it to the poor. Turning a blind eye to the needs of the needy is disgraceful. But when a person has a true need and, and God has given us the ability to meet the need, we have to pray and we have to ask, ask God to help us understand what it means to meet that need in a way that's honoring and pleasing to Him. And then he's, He ends with the results of righteous behavior. Now, look what happens if you go through this detoxification of hypocrisy. Look what it says in verse 8. The results of righteous behavior. If you recognize it, if you repent of it, if you turn from it, look what it says. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he'll say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be noonday. And look what it says in verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually. He'll satisfy your soul in drought. He'll strengthen your bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose, whose waters don't fail in verse 11. 11. And then in verse 12, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You'll raise up the foundations for many generations. You, you'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. In the opening verse, in verse 8, when it says, then your light shall break forth like the morning, I think it's the light of salvation. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And so he goes through a laundry list, and I just want to quickly just point them out to you. Here are the results of righteous behavior. Number one, 
hypocrites who repent will receive light and healing from the Lord. And like I said, the light is almost certainly a reference to the light of salvation. In John chapter 1, verse 4, remember what Jesus said, In him was life, and the light was the light of men. So, again, when you're wondering, well, what's the cure for hypocrisy? It's to get saved, initially. Get saved. Enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. Well, what if I'm already a Christian and I'm a hypocrite? Oh, we'll get there. Number two. Hypocrites who repent will receive righteousness and the protection of God. Look what it says again at the end of verse 8, where it says, Then your light shall break forth, your healing shall bring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. In other words, hypocrites who repent receive light. Hypocrites who repent receive righteousness and the protection of God. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? It's being accepted by God. Righteousness doesn't produce salvation, but rather, listen carefully, salvation produces righteousness. How, how does that happen? The moment you receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, when you recognize, realize, and receive Him as the provision of your transgression and your sin, in the New Testament it says, you receive the righteousness of God which is in Christ. In other words, when you're in Jesus, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that's how your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because guess what? You are righteous in Christ. Once a person turns to the Lord, they receive the righteousness of Christ. You become righteous in God's eyes. There's no greater mystery in the universe of how a wicked person can become a righteous person in the eyes of God. In addition, you're assured, you're guaranteed the presence and the protection of the Lord. Walk in Jesus and you receive the presence and the protection of the Lord. By the way, hypocrites who repent, look what happened. Their prayers are answered. When you call upon the Lord, He promises to hear. And it's more than that. He will answer. And listen carefully. The hypocrite who turns, who really turns, who fully turns, who... And let me help you with this concept of repentance. Repentance isn't simply being sorry for what you did. Repentance can't be, I'm sorry... But I know that when Friday comes, I'm going to do it again because I'm planning on it. It isn't really repentance when you're conspiring in your heart the next time you get to commit the sin. That's one of the ways that you know that you really haven't sinned. It's when you're reasonably certain you're going to continue in your sin. But when you turn away from the oppression when you turn away from the sin, when you turn away from the mistreatment of others, when you really come to grips with the reality that you don't have the right to mistreat others. Not your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your boss. That you have a responsibility to love the Lord and to treat others the way that you wish to be treated. You have to stop pointing fingers at others. You have to stop blaming others. You have to stop contrasting and comparing your wickedness with the wickedness of others and your goodness with their goodness. You give up malicious gossip and evil speaking and profanity like the New Testament says. And so hypocrites who repent become, they don't just receive the light. This is part of what Isaiah is saying. They don't just receive the light, but you become a light. 
You become a strong witness to people in their dark hour and in times of personal need. Look at verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Do you know what it's saying in verse 10? Your dark becomes light and your light becomes a testimony to everyone around you. And people look at you and they go, God could save somebody like you. Maybe there's hope for me. If somebody can change someone who is so wicked and so evil and so obnoxious and so hypocritical and so mean-spirited and so inconsistent, the moment in humility and contrition, you turn and I turn from my hypocrisy and we begin to live in the light of Jesus Christ Something remarkable happens. People who are in darkness, who are in despair, who are in depression, who are in gloom, whose lives are are filled with dirt. It becomes like a, a dark room where the windows are opened and the door is open and the light floods in and the darkness disappears. And this is exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, when he said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill can't be hid. And then he promises in verse 11, Hypocrites who repent will receive guidance and strength. See what it says? The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. That means when you're weak and tired and you feel like you can't go on, God promises His guidance. He promises His direction. He he promises His instruction. And this is part of the point. It's not just temporary, but it's permanent. Lord, if I'm really good on Monday, will you lead me and guide me and protect me on Monday? If I'm really good and I abandon my hypocrisy, will you lead me and guide me and protect me on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday? Here's the idea. He will faithfully direct those who have repented and turned to him in faith and obedience. In John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He won't speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he'll show you the things to come. The idea being that when we turn and we Don't walk in hypocrisy, but we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, your promised guidance. And and look what else. Hypocrites who repent will receive provision and strength so that the Lord will meet not just some need, but every need. Look what it says. The Lord will guide you continually in verse 11 and satisfy your soul in the drought. He'll strengthen your bones. You'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Those who went to to Israel with me, we, we understood what it meant to live in a desert country. And I've told you this before. In Egypt, they had the Nile. In Babylon, they had the Euphrates. And in Israel, they had this little mud puddle called the Jordan River. And if you have to rely on the Jordan River for water, you're going to be in big, fat, stinking trouble. And when you come to a spring that's a well-watered spring, that's a continual spring, that is always, every day, day after day, giving water, you know what? You get to live every day. Day after day. And so here is the idea. Even the drought-scorched land, the Lord will provide believers what they need to walk through the trial and walk through the hardship. Again, the well-watered spring is a spring that never fails. And so again, we understand what it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Guess what? When hypocrisy is replaced with hallelujah, dependence and submission, something else happens. 
something remarkable. Look at verse 12. Those from whom or those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called, look what it says, hypocrite, liar, foolish Christian. No, you will be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is part of the challenge. Hypocrites who repent, listen carefully because this is important, will receive an honorable name. Have you ever been called a liar, a cheat, a hypocrite? You're such a phony. You're so fake. You're so false. You're such a hypocrite. But guess what? Hypocrites who repent can receive an honorable name. Now, now think about this. This is a direct reference to the children of Jacob, to Israel. But again, it applies to every believer in every generation. Isaiah, here's the prediction. He predicts that the Babylonian exiles who are set free and who return to Judah and the nation, remember what will happen. Jerusalem will still be in ruins. The cities surrounding Judah will still be in, in a horrible circumstance. And it's going to be necessary for the children of Israel to rebuild their nation and to rebuild their walls. And when we were in Israel, remember when we were in the city of David and we saw that one little pattern right there that might have been an ancient, ancient uh, place that, that represented at least in part a breach that was built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Here is the idea. They go back. They'll carry on the construction of the city. They'll be the repairer of the breach. They'll be the restorer of the city streets. In other words, they're going to receive honorable mention as a people who were committed to the reconstruction of their nation. They would be those who repair the broken walls. It becomes a type and a picture of those who repair lives that have been broken by sin. They'll begin to rebuild the paths of their lives and to build up structures of righteousness so that you no longer have to bear the name of hypocrite and liar and failure. You know what you get to be? The person who prays for the sick, who provides for the needy. Instead of being a liar and hypocrite and failure, you get to be the person who understands righteousness because you lead other people to faith and confidence in Christ. Instead of being the destroyer of families, you get to pray for families so that they'll be healed and restored. And then look what it says, how it ends. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know what he's talking about? That the liars and the hypocrites and the failures, when the temple is destroyed and the sacrifice is removed, in order to maintain their identity as Jews in a foreign land, they're going to have to hear and understand and obey the word of the Lord. In other words... In the earthly battle with the religious hypocrites and the religious leaders, there was no issue that was so in the forefront of the New Testament than the issue of the Sabbath. By the way, do you remember why Jesus, in part, was killed? It's because he was accused of breaking the Sabbath. You remember Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. And when it was all over, the religious leaders made a con concentrated effort. They literally put a contract out on Jesus' life. In other words, they would rather murder Jesus than to allow him, at least in their own mind, to continue to break the Sabbath according to their own view of the Sabbath. The religious leaders felt that they were the guardians of the sacred traditions. They felt like they were the moral police for everyone else. And it wasn't good enough that they kept the Sabbath. They had to make sure that everyone else did also. But the point that is made here in Isaiah is that they must not break the Sabbath by doing whatever they want on the Sabbath day. 
It was to be a day of worship and a day of rest. It was to be a day that they delighted in the Lord and honored His name and honored His law or the Word. The purpose of the Sabbath was a day to set aside, not to do whatever you wanted, but rather to honor and worship the Lord and not to engage in useless idle talk, but to worship the Lord and to understand His Word, to understand the promises and to obey the promises. And here's the idea. If they did that, they would inherit the promises of Jacob. And what was the promise of Jacob? It's the promised land. They'll return to the land, but the land becomes a type and a picture for the Christian of heaven. But more than heaven. For the Christian, the promised land is the promised Messiah. It is the Savior. You occupy Jesus. And everything that Jesus is. From Genesis to the book of Revelation. You don't just simply live from Elot to Dan. Or from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates to, to Egypt. It's not talking about a physical piece of dirt for us. But rather a Savior who occupies eternity. And look what it says. They're given promises. That they will be filled with joy. In the Lord. They'll ride high or be victorious in the high places of their enemies of the earth. They'll receive honor from the Lord. They'll receive the full share of the inheritance. And in the New Testament, here's what we discover we have a day. Not just a Sabbath day, but a Sabbath God. We don't simply rest on one specific day, but we rest in one specific person. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Without worship, our spirit dries up. Without rest, our body breaks down. And so the hypocrite who turns from his or her hypocrisy and worships the Lord, feeds his or her spirit and nourishes the body. So what kind of a fast does God desire? The one that seeks to support the needy, to alleviate suffering and misery, rather than parade one's own spirituality. It is a fast where you starve pride and you feed humility. It's a fast where you get to go lower and lower and lower so that you can find God in the high place. Because remember, that's where God will meet you. David in his sin said to the Lord, obedience is better than sacrifice. And also, it wasn't sacrifice that you desired, but a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? All of the promises that are made if we just simply make the choice in humility and contrition to recognize our own hypocrisy and repent and then experience all of the joy that's found in Jesus as you walk in submission and obedience and purity and humility. The next time we meet, we're going to start the conclusion of the book of Isaiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what is it that you desire? It's not just simply refraining from food it's refraining from pride what is it that you want us to do to humble ourselves to become dependent upon you Lord we pray that you would reveal in spite of our pain and in spite of our pride and in spite of our prejudice those areas of our life where we need to to repent to recognize our hypocrisy, not for the purposes 
of beating us up, but rather for the purpose of lifting us up so that we can walk with lives filled with joy, filled with peace, honoring you and honoring each other. Lord, we pray that we would become men and women of God who live not in hypocrisy and selfishness, but in purity and righteousness, the righteousness that's been given to us in Christ Jesus the Lord. Speak to our hearts. Reveal our circumstances. Impart your love and your grace to us because of Jesus and for Jesus' sake. Lord, I pray each person here would take some time, maybe not now, maybe now, but in the quietness of their own heart. And when they find that that garden, that secret place, that, Lord, they'll do an inventory inside of their soul, that, Lord, they'll pray the prayer of David, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my soul, reveal my wickedness, my unrighteousness, my hypocrisy. Lord, deliver me from my own wickedness, my sickness, my my selfishness, Lord. Cause me to be a man who loves you and honors you. And that that honor and that love is reflected in the very real way I treat others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.